This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. When I started working as an English language instructor in Colombia, I soon realized that I wasn't simply teaching my students vocabulary, grammar, syntax, pronunciation, and context. I was also teaching them cultural ideology. Spanish speakers in particular are often told that their English is too passive because the direct translation of various sentences sounds more passive in English. But does that mean that Spanish is a passive language? Spanish speakers, passive people, not even close. English and Spanish simply have different priorities. For instance, Le Matarona Juan Carlos starts with an abstraction, an indefinite pronoun, le, which is bad form in English, where we want concrete nouns before we start using general terms like it or he. Even worse, this Spanish sentence puts the indefinite pronoun, this he, without a prior reference in front of a conjugated verb, mataron, that has no separate subject. And then it uses a preposition, a, not to create a sense of distance between the verb and an indirect object, as we would in English, but rather to show the strength of the connection between the main action and its target. They killed Juan Carlos is the proper English translation, not he they killed to Juan Carlos, a more direct, literal translation of those Spanish words. And yet it is extremely difficult to tell which is the more passive construction in its respective context. This is because the reflexive nature of Spanish is actually doing quite a bit of proactive counterbalancing. The doubled reference to Juan Carlos is not redundant, but a way of offsetting Juan Carlos's passive role in the sentence by wrapping the fact of his existence around the main verb. Someone killed him, yes, but in this Spanish sentence structure, the prioritization of the victim is far stronger than in the only alternative in English, Juan Carlos was killed, a statement that puts the victim first, but eliminates the perpetrator altogether. As a child, I quickly absorbed what we call prescriptive English, an English of rigid rules and norms, but it took me a lot longer to recognize the deeper cultural reasons for what supposedly constitutes good English. My father never tired of pointing out that a famous phrase in Star Trek Next Generation, to boldly go, was a dreaded split infinitive because the adverb boldly had been set between the two elements of the base verb form to go. And yet I later learned that this rule only existed because of a misguided belief that a gentleman's English should emulate his Latin, a language in which the base form of a verb is only one word and where it is therefore impossible to split an infinitive. Similarly, our revulsion of double negatives in quote-unquote proper English, which is so often used by white English speakers to criticize African-American variant English and related patois, derives from a ridiculous belief among Western philosophers 
when first seeking to standardize English in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, that English should follow the rules of mathematics. If two negatives make a positive in math, their reasoning went, then obviously the same should be true for language. Even though it has never, never not been true that language usage doesn't also favor the use of doubled up concepts for emphasis and to convey conviction. Clarity first, of course, but plenty of languages, including Spanish, use double negatives in precisely this more emphatic way without any loss to overall meaning. But sometimes the problems with cultural ideology run even deeper. Sometimes they run straight into having to teach my students English concepts that reinforce the ideology of white Western supremacy so that they won't make costly mistakes on a standardized English language comprehension test like the IELTS or TOEFL, which they might need to take to access improved educational and work opportunities. And that's where I start to ask myself, how do I counterbalance language structures that clearly reinforce a top-down hierarchy of peoples and cultures? How do I help the Juan Carloses in my classes approach non-native English from less than passive roles within the Anglo-Western paradigm? And in general, as a language descriptivist, how do I help challenge our frankly unearned confidence that certain ways of organizing words, sentences, and whole philosophies are superior so that people don't need to become bilingual to benefit from what a little bit of semiotic uncertainty can teach them about the challenges of communicating and truly being heard? For the rest of this podcast series, you're going to hear me using and pronouncing a few terms a little differently than you might be used to. This part of the podcast's narrative aesthetic will be a work in progress for me too, so that list of terms will probably grow as we go along, and I look forward to sharing those new terms with you too as I learn them. Today though, I want to walk you through the reasoning behind three of them and in particular what they offer in the way of reframing how we think about the world and other peoples in it. It's that mental flip after all, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You are listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. And today we're articulating some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around pronunciation.
remember the first time you learned that the name of a place you had been saying all your life was not actually the name of the place for those who live in it. Names for countries that are used by people outside the country are called exonyms, from exo as in external. Names that people use internally in the native languages of a given country are endonyms. I remember when I first learned the endonym for quote-unquote Mexico, and it wasn't a positive experience. It came from a fellow white person who had just traveled to Mexico with her family and was now correcting the rest of us from a position of smug, worldly superiority. The same happened later on when I met someone fresh from his European tour, which had included, he insisted, a visit to Barcelona instead of the Barcelona that English speakers more commonly use. Nippon or Nihon for Japan, Deutschland for Germany, the list went on, but almost always from a place of competition rather than shared discovery. And that difference in delivery reveals something telling about how we treat knowledge in general. unspoken unit of information that these Western vacationers were conveying was one of class status, of experiences drawn from lives of greater mobility. I know something you don't know because I have access to something you haven't accessed, or I arrived at some greater fount of knowledge first. And from now on, if you know this information too, it's only because I decided to bestow it upon you. It's not everyone, obviously. Some people have a delightfully welcoming way of sharing new knowledge so that everyone feels like they're benefiting from it. But I've also known many people who make fun of endonymic pronunciations, and not just by saying, for instance, Mexico, sarcastically, but also by garbling the Spanish names for common foods and activities, as if out of spite for discovering that they have other pronunciations. Is this racism? Xenophobia? Both terms certainly have a role here somewhere, but white Westerners who use these terms are often flinging them at other white Westerners, and that suggests a different power play at work. An act of retaliation of sorts. But retaliating against what? If someone's initial exposure to the existence of endonyms came from another member of their demographic correcting them, especially with that air of superiority I mentioned above, then we've entered into the realm of status-seeking and of saving face that helps to fill in the behavioral gap. Being made to feel ignorant, to feel lesser, is rarely conducive to fostering receptivity to new ideas, and we often lash out being made to feel ignorant, to feel lesser, is rarely conducive to fostering receptivity to new ideas, and we often lash out with passive-aggressive hostility to defend against feeling that way again. Sound familiar? Pronunciation of proper names is by no means the only domain in which we struggle to naturalize new language amid the confusion, shame, and general resistance of people who think they are being made to feel lesser for not already knowing the correct terminology. In his 2016 comedy special, Talking for Clapping, actor-comedian Patton Oswalt 
appeals to progressive movements to be more patient and understanding if folks cannot remember or are not yet up to speed on all the current progressive jargon. And he does this by pointing out that ill-intentioned people are often very quick to adopt the correct jargon as a sophisticated mask for ongoing bigotry. Meanwhile, some folks whose terminology feels straight out of the 1970s might be profoundly supportive allies of the idea that everyone deserves equal dignity under the law. In other words, what we're ultimately dealing with in matters of language use and relationship to respect is emotional more than intellectual. It's about belonging and about not wanting to have to do more work than necessary to belong. The collision between two or more groups with different ideas about what belonging should require is what ultimately causes so much strife in the world today. We are all coherent actors, even when our choices are neither ideal nor justice-seeking, and our conflicts are not over who has the best argument or the most accurate data. They're about who feels included and who feels left out in the societal roadmap we're building next. In good grief, can pronunciation ever lead to a lot of people feeling and being left out? In these podcasts, I will be talking a lot about Colombia, because Colombia is the country and social contract that I'm trying to turn into my forever home. Whether I will succeed is moot. What I find striking is that either way, after some 3.5 years of trying, many friends and family members back in Canada and the US still cannot spell or pronounce the country name correctly. Younger people can, because they aren't as entrenched yet in their pronunciation of places like British Columbia, or the District of Columbia, or of people like Christopher Columbus and places like Columbia University. But for older folks, it has been a bit of a lost cause to get many of them to spell the country Colombia with a second O, not a U, simply because they are so used to the other spelling that it seems easier to try to get the dictionary to change its accepted spelling of the country's name, rather than acclimate to an exception to the rule. I have attempted the direct corrective approach, but it often came across as an accusation of ignorance, like the ones I mentioned above, and so now I simply include the correct spelling casually in my responses. In this podcast, too, you will hear me pronounce it the endonymic way, Colombia, in the hope that gentle, everyday exposure to the sound will help many people remember how to write it down. This is because it really does bother a great many Colombians. When the North Americans they work with are quick to make snap judgments about a country they can't even be bothered to spell properly. And yet, as Patton Oswalt noted, there are levels of respect that we fail to consider when we just focus on spelling and pronunciation. In the case of Colombia, for instance, Colombians would kind of prefer that people don't make snap judgments about their country at all. Better the person who writes Colombia in a work email and speaks of its people and histories with respect than the person who spells it correctly to disparage its wide-ranging experiences and cultures. Then there's the pronunciation of the city I call my home and love so very much, Medellin, at the heart of the department, which is another word for state or province, of Antioquia. 
Many North Americans struggle with this pronunciation, and for coherent reasons, because the Romanized alphabet is absolutely jumping through different hoops in Spanish. Those with minimal exposure to Spanish will treat the double L as we do in English, and call the city Medellin. Those who watch Narcos, or who have exposure to North American Spanish with its strong Chicano accents, will say Medellin, because that's how the double L is enunciated in certain Spanishes of the world, including the Spanish of Mexico. And to make matters worse, in at least two South American countries, Medellin is Medellin, because in Argentina and Uruguay, the double L takes a sh sound instead. Now, obviously, I'm going to be saying Medellin in these episodes, in La Mera Muy Paisa Paisa, but honestly, I love that different Spanish-speaking countries also struggle to use the correct endonym. This, for me, serves as a reminder that the work of improving our global humanism is by no means the sole provenance of Anglo-Western people, much as many of us in the West tend to think otherwise. Yes. As fellow English speakers raised or now living in Western industrial contexts, you are the people I will most often call to action in these episodes, and with the Global Humanist Shop Talk columns in general. But everyone has prejudices and biases and information silos. Everyone. And the work of overcoming them begins with recognizing that other bodies of knowledge exist at all. one term, though, that I would especially encourage people in the United States and Canada to consider adding to their vocabulary, the same way that many of us have already naturalized other imported Spanish words like macho, jalapeno, and guacamole, as a way of counterbalancing the linguistic assumptions that shape or even distort the world around us. The word is estadounidense, estado for state, and unidense, from unido, or united. In translation, it's a person from the United States. Huh. Now why don't we have a word for that in English? As a Canadian, I had somehow gone my entire life before moving to Colombia, referring to our nation's southern neighbors as centrally and singularly American. Only after moving to Colombia did it finally click in that I too was American and that the people I was learning from here, Colombians, by and large, also view themselves as Americans too. There's a famous contemporary anthem around this concept by Colombian pop fusion band Bomba Estéreo, Internacionales, in which the singer firmly proclaims, Yo soy americano. I am American, and I cannot tell you how much I was thrown by that early realization of how much cultural supremacy had been packed into my prior understanding of the term American as a word of immediate relevance only for the U.S. population. Years on, I have now seen the same shock in my students' faces on multiple occasions whenever I first teach them that they cannot simply say they are from America when answering relevant questions on their English exams. When I explain that Canadians and Estadounidenses are taught to see North America and South America as separate continents, some of them simply do not believe me. 
the same way, quite sensibly, that many a child will look at a teacher with the deepest skepticism when teacher tries to tell them that Europe is a separate continent too. We have built systems of cultural supremacy right into the basics of our language and into the pride we instill in subsequent generations when they learn to replicate even our most arbitrary and erratic language conventions without reflecting deeper on where they came from. Worse still, when some of us do realize the dangers of language prescriptivism and seek a more inclusive and descriptive approach, we run up against the problem of how to change our language systems without coming off as trying to use newfound knowledge to wield social power over people who simply want to feel comfortable and to belong as easily and as efficiently as possible. Feelings matter, in other words, as does remembering that the Western world is by no means alone in this struggle for self-improvement by recognizing that there are indeed many other equally valid ways of saying and naming critical facets of our shared world. In future episodes, then, whenever you hear me say Medellin, Colombia, Estadounidense, or even something as silly and dear to me as Trana, one way of pronouncing the city where I was born, please remember that some of the most resilient cultural transformations come less from grand confrontation and more from the everyday use of different ways of speaking and structuring thought, ways that invite others, if not to follow suit, because all our languages are going to vary somewhat, then at least to feel a bit more comfortable when following along. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Mm-hmm.